COVID-19 offers us the potential to heal, not only from the virus, but the many interconnected problems that plague us. The mental health crisis, our disconnect from nature, racial injustice, inequitable distribution of wealth, our ailing biosphere. The pandemic has shown us that we can find ourselves joined together to solve a common problem and mobilize massive resources at a moment's notice. It's shown us that we can make vast public investments in our shared well-being and even change the way we live our lives. How can we translate the way we've adapted during COVID-19 into a better future, where the health of people and the planet is seen as one and cared for by all? How do we transform the urgency of the moment into lasting change? What seems to be an overwhelming crisis of many issues is, in fact, an enormous opportunity to get things right. And the best news is that we don't have to try to manipulate and direct all of nature. We are at the heart of the crisis. And the solution also is in us. On the show today, an old friend whose wise insight is as relevant as ever. As we wrap up the first season of our new podcast, I'm delighted to be joined by Neil Young. I also have the pleasure of showing off someone I get to speak to pretty much every day, Tara Cullis, co-founder and current president of the David Suzuki Foundation Board, former Harvard faculty member and environmental advocate of over 30 years. Tara is also my wife. She tells us about the different sides of the brain and the role love and spirit play in the life of activism. Like air and water, like love and companionship, we need spiritual connection. Yet for so many of us, the months since the pandemic began have been a time of disconnect. Perhaps there's no better moment than now to contemplate our interconnectedness with one another and to all life on earth. We are made from the earth. Our stories tell us this, and so does the science. Yet our busy, increasingly urban lives make this immutable truth so easy to forget. The rabbi and writer Daniel Swartz noted that long ago, quote, we knew less about the natural world than we do today, much less. But we understood the world better, for we lived ever so much closer to its rhythms. My hope is that as we navigate our way through this pandemic, we will seek and rediscover these timeless rhythms that hold the key to our modern problems. It's worth remembering that humans have lived on this planet sustainably before. Indigenous peoples lived here for tens of thousands of years and never imperiled the natural world. But they understood something we must again embrace. There is nothing on this earth that is not connected, in body and in spirit. My father died in 1994. I moved in with him to care for him in his last month and helped write his obituary. He wasn't in pain. 
He knew he was dying and he was prepared. His obituary read, Car Suzuki died peacefully on May 8th. He was 85. His ashes will be spread on the winds of Quadra Island. He found great strength in the Japanese tradition of nature worship. Shortly before he died, he said, I will return to nature where I came from. I will be part of the fish, the trees, the birds. They are my reincarnation. I have had a rich and full life and have no regrets. I will live on in your memories of me and through my grandchildren. The Victorian scientist Thomas Huxley said, living nature is not a mechanism, but a poem. In the dream of the earth, Thomas Berry wrote, tell me the story of the river and the valley and the streams and the woodlands and wetlands of shellfish and finfish. A story of where we are and how we got here and the characters and the roles we play. Tell me a story. A story that will be my story, as well as the story of everyone and everything about me. The story that brings together the human community with every living being in the valley. A story that brings us together under the arc of the great blue sky in the day and the starry heavens at night. Let me share a brief part of my own story. I have been privileged to live in the same house in Vancouver for 45 years. It's on the oceanfront of English Bay, facing west and north Vancouver. In the 1990s, as Hong Kong was soon to revert back to China, I received an unsolicited letter from a real estate agent announcing, Offshore money is flooding into Vancouver. Now is a good time to sell your house and buy up. I had never heard the notion of buying up, and I was offended by the idea that what had become my home was simply considered a piece of real estate and an opportunity. I decided to make a list at that time of everything that made this house our home. And here's some of what I wrote. When Tara and I were married, Dad built us kitchen cabinets for our apartment. And when we bought the house, we pulled one out and installed it in our kitchen. Didn't fit. But every time I opened a cupboard door, I thought of Dad. I invited Tara's parents to come and live with us after retirement. And her dad was an avid gardener. He planted raspberries and asparagus because he knew I loved them. And after I'd been away on a long trip in the United States, I came home to find my father-in-law standing there who handed me a bag and said, these are the first asparagus this season and I saved them for you. I built a tree house in the dogwood tree overlooking the beach and I find enormous pleasure watching our daughters playing in it. My best friend came from Toronto and spent a week with us while I was building a fence. He spent hours carving a handle for the gate. And now every time I open that gate, I think of Jim. When mom died in 1984, we spread her ashes on a clematis plant along the fence. And then my niece Janice died and we placed her ashes with mom's. And every year when those purple flowers appear, I feel 
they are still there. Throughout the house are pictures, knickknacks, souvenirs that remind us of birthdays, Christmases, and special moments. That list is some of the things that are priceless and make this place our home. But on the real estate market, they are worthless. And that is the problem today. We have elevated the economy to our highest priority, yet it fails to value the things that matter most to us. And then I think of indigenous people who over thousands of years thought of Earth as their mother and home, who have so much to offer us to help rediscover our way. We've heard on this season of the podcast indigenous voices that can help us reconnect to the timeless rhythms of the earth and spirit. Perhaps now is the moment for each of us in this time of anxiety and uncertainty and separation to again look for wonder in the interconnectedness of all things and to contemplate what in life is truly important. My first guest today is Neil Young. Neil needs no introduction for fans of his music. He is considered by many of us to be one of the greatest musical artists of all time. In his songwriting and in his actions on stage and off stage, Neil has stood up for his beliefs and fought for a greener and kinder world. He's been pointing out the impacts of our society on the earth for decades. Music has always been a powerful way to communicate change, and I believe to touch something deep inside us. We caught up with Neil at his home. Hey now, how are you doing? Good, how are you? Good to see you, David. Thank you for doing this. Uh, great to see you. How's uh, Daryl? She's great. She's I know she's more. great. <laughs> <laughs> I have to tell you right off the bat, that this is great for us to have you, but I met and fell in love with Daryl before I even knew about the work you're doing. She's been an eco-warrior for so long. Yeah, she's fantastic. She's incredible, yeah. So please pass on my, my love for her and uh, you know, just admiration. The two of you, I feel it's kind of like Tara and me, you know, the combo is uh, pretty powerful. Well, we feel glad to be together and lucky that we can share so many things. You know, one thing I've, I've wondered, and I've asked a number of musicians this, and they've never really given me a good answer. When I've found, you know, through all the years I've been doing things, whenever I ask musicians, John Denver, Buffy St. Marie, uh, uh, Gordon Lightfoot from way, way back, Bruce Coburn, and you've been a longtime activist, what is it about musicians what is it that makes them more open to these issues? Well, I don't know if they're more open to them. They just have a voice. There's just as many people in all walks of life that are very concerned about things and have opinions, but they don't have a way to share them. And they can't put them into a message that people share. Uh, the musicians really don't have any more going for them than the regular other people. It's just that musicians have got this tool. Have you met Greta? Never met her, no. What do you think of the impact she's had? Oh, I think she's great. I think she's wonderful. You know, I love, I love what she's doing, and I love the way she is. And uh, I love everything about her. 
See, the power of Greta to me, where she is really, I think, different, is she's got no vested interest in the status quo. So she sees with a clarity. She's not into all the games that are played in business or politics or, or the law. She just sees as a child with clarity. She'd be good to go to Ottawa with us. Yes. She'd be good because she's a youth voice. You need youth voices that are understood, not just Canadian youth voices, but youth around the world that is understood. And she's a great example. She's, a, she's done really well. And she's so focused because the, of the way she is, uh, you know, the way she's built. She's a very focused individual. And, uh, you know, and you can see it in her face. You can see it. She rarely uh, cracks a smile because she's very serious about things. And Well, she came to Vancouver and really gave a big shot in the arm to a group called Sustainability Teens. These are teenagers that are fighting for climate. And they did a little film. And three of them went to see the Minister of the Environment in uh, Victoria. This is the BC minister. And he greeted them, you know, oh, hi, kids, great to see you, welcome. And he thought it was a photo op. And they nailed him immediately with, why is the government pushing LNG, liquefied natural gas? And you see his face change and go, well, you know, I think it's a, a transition fuel. Well, I'm really sorry, but we have to go now. <laughs> so I think I, I mentioned to you in my email, I'm urging youth. Now, if your mom and dad love you, you they've got to be warriors on your behalf because they vote. They're the ones that can tell government, I'm not going to vote for or, or any politician. I won't vote for you or your party if climate isn't at the top of your agenda. You know, the people that are going to be listening to this are all going to be big Neil Young fans. And, and I think the a big question is, what is it that got you into being an activist? Hey, just because you have a job doesn't mean that you don't have an opinion. <laughs> yeah. I don't even feel like an activist. I mean, you know, I wrote Look at Mother Nature on the Run in the 1970s. I wrote that in 1970s. I happen to be a musician. I mean, it's just what I do. Now, I've been really intrigued by your support of, of uh, farmers. Again, was that a, a sense of social justice that farmers were on the short end of the stick? Or was it that food is such a, an important uh, part of our lives? Or Well, as usual, Bob Dylan was the one who, who put that together. And then we, you know, everybody just gathered around because it seemed like the right thing to do. I mean, you know, we got some of the worst shit happening in the world with farms. I mean, uh, you know, but it's, again, we got to clean up the way we do our work. You got to clean up the way we treat the earth. We gotta, and that's a basic thing. You got the dirt in your hands. You got a machine going back and forth. You're putting this crap on it or you're not. That's the basic thing. It's either yes or no. Is the earth good enough with the sun and the water and the air? Or do we need to add crap to it? You know, ask yourself that question. I belong to the National Farmers Union for many years now, and I'm very proud of uh, supporting the, the farmers. But farming, you know, there, there are different kinds of farms. And I think industrial agriculture is not farming. Industrial agriculture is what leads to the, these massive incarcerations of, of animals, and it's just to get get a product out, input, output. There's no concern for the earth. But you meet farmers, boy, I mean, family farmers, very different relationship with the land. 
Well, they, they are the land. They live on the land. They, they, they take care of it. They touch it. And, you know, some of them have been polluted. Some of them have been purchased. Other ones have lost their farms, and then the corporations have come in and just wiped everything out. It's just something that we need to deal with. But we can't deal with it with the old head. We need a new head. This is the challenge. If you look at cleaning up the mess that's left, it's exactly the mess that we've had. It's just bigger. It's the same mess. It's just gotten bigger because every environmental protection thing we put in place has been taken away. So when that's put back in, we just got to go much farther with it. But it's the same subject. There's nothing new. We just got to do our thing. We just got to go in there and do it. And I really feel confident that we can do it. We have to be able to do it. If we don't, it's, you know, curtains for our grandchildren. I always tell people I'm in the death zone. And, uh, you know, there's nothing morbid about that. The reality is when you're, you hit your 80s, uh, you know, the, you're, the, you're, the chance of living much longer is much diminished. Expand it. Expand the death zone. It's just make the death zone as, as happy a one as possible. And that's my grandchildren. You know, my, I've been holed up here in a cabin. You would love it here, Neil. I'm on a cabin on an island in the Pacific with my, three of my grandchildren. Yesterday, off my dock, I was going to set out in my boat to go salmon fishing. I noticed the anchovies were jumping. I threw my line in and I caught an eight pound salmon right off my dock. I saw, and my grandchildren were there with me. It doesn't get any better than this, you know? No, it doesn't, especially then, then you eat it. Yes, exactly. And then, hey, that's it, hello. Yes, and I sh I'm sharing half of it with my neighbor who's got a great garden and she gives us all kinds of things. This is, you know, this is, a kind of way we should be living. How can we bring that thinking to the inner cities? This is the challenge, of course, because cities are our major habitat now. How do we make cities a place that are livable, where kids can experience nature and, and their food, grow their own food? Look what's happening. This uh, virus has completely changed the way we view the safety of the city, the security of the city, our need to be in the city. Now what we've learned, we don't have to go to the office. We have technology. You're in your office. I'm in my office. Yeah. People are working from home. They don't need to commute anymore. If you have an internet connection, you don't need to be in the city. Living in the country is a great thing. You know, I'm a lucky, very lucky man. And I live in a beautiful place. I walk out every day. I don't go anywhere. I don't see anyone. I've wanted to slow down for 50 years. Right. For 50 years, I've been traveling, doing this, doing that, concerts, this, make a record, going all over the world, everywhere. And I'm going to myself, this not going anywhere and not going to cities and just staying in one place and working and cleaning up the mess that I've made for the last 50 years with my art so that I can organize it and get it all done. COVID was a gift. In a strange way. Thank you very much. Hey, thank you, David. For our final expert interview of the season, I have the privilege of speaking with Dr. Tara Cullis. Tara is an award-winning writer and former Harvard University faculty member. She's been a key player in environmental movements in the Amazon, Southeast Asia, Japan, and British Columbia. 
Here on Canada's West Coast, she co-founded the Turning Point Initiative, now known as the Coastal First Nations Great Bear Initiative, which brought First Nations of British Columbia's central and northern coasts into an historic alliance protecting the ecology of the Great Bear Rainforest. Before co-founding the David Suzuki Foundation with me in 1990, Tara founded or co-founded nine other organizations. Wow, I am impressed. She also happens to be my wife of almost 47 years, and I couldn't be a luckier person. I can tell you firsthand that love is a key ingredient in Tara's special sauce, and that spirit is core to everything she does. Tara obtained her Ph.D. in comparative literature at the University of Wisconsin. Covering French, German, and English literature, she was struck by the warnings of the coming power and impact of science, most famously in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, where Frankenstein was the scientist doctor. But in the 20th century, when science became so dominant, literature seemed devoid of recognition of its immense influence on the world. Tara had been impressed with Nobel Prize-winning scientist Roger Sperry's work on the human brain. As you know, our brains consist of two hemispheres, left and right, which are connected with a broad band of neurons called the corpus callosum. It was long known from victims of stroke or brain cancer that the left hemisphere controls the right sides of our bodies and speech, while the right hemisphere controls our left side and our more artistic functions. Victims of severe epilepsy suffer from storms of electrical impulses surging from one hemisphere to the other, and in order to halt the seizures, Doctors cut the corpus callosum. Amazingly, the patient survived and the seizures stopped. But inside the skull, two disconnected hemispheres revealed there were two very different psyches. In a famous instance, a man with a split brain became so enraged with his wife that he raised his right hand to strike her, only to have his left hand grab his right wrist and stop him. Of course, there are duplicate functions in both hemispheres, but in broad strokes, the left hemisphere that controls the right side in speech also manages mathematics, linear logical thought, while the right side is holistic, sees the big picture, is the emotional, artistic side. The left side can see a nose, eyes, and a mouth, but could not recognize a face. That's what the right side does, puts them together. Tara's thesis was based on the split-brain work and suggested that literature reflected a rupture between the two sides, with the left side becoming dominant, but we need the right to keep things together. One more thing before we get started. Tara and I recorded our conversation on Zoom from our home, so you might hear some glitches from time to time. So, Tara, welcome to this podcast. Thank you. This is interesting. (laughs) This is a program all about spirit. And, you know, the first time I went to Israel, I went to Jerusalem 
to the dome on the rock, you know, very famous dome that is revered by both the Muslims and the Jews as a sacred place. At the time, I thought, you know, if an alien came from a different galaxy and found this planet and started studying the organisms on the planet and discovered one of those species seems to show some signs of intelligence. And so they zeroed in on it and came to the dome on the rock. And they'd say, well, this organism has built a very elaborate structure. When you look at what that structure is built over, well, it's a rock. But humans have made it something much more than that. I mean, this is a sacred place. The human brain remembers things, embellishes the stories around that rock and have made it some. So it's all about the brain. It is all about the brain and, and that sense of being able to create meaning, to put meaning into an inanimate object or something like a rock, which doesn't look any different from any, any other rock. It's a manifestation of spirit because it's meaningful to the mind of people who um, respect that place. And what is spirit? I mean, spirit comes from the same root as the word inspire, which actually means to breathe in. So spirit is breath. It's the first breath that a, a little newborn baby takes. It's the last breath that you or your mother or your spouse takes on your or their deathbed. So air is sacred. Spirit is breath, the symbol of life. And during life, there are moments when you feel it inspiration you're breathing in something more than air it's a glorious feeling it's the feeling that triggers the sense that i'm on the path i'm meant mm. to be on spirit is that part of you that captures the essence of what you feel is the everlasting center of you the things that you remember after a person is dead so it's your essence and it comes from your right brain and it connects you to others and to the past and to the future but in life, the spirit needs the body to act. Mm. And so that's when I realized we really do have to balance the left and the right brain. They're both so important. I feel that this great rise in the power of, of scientific or left brain thinking has led to terrific scientific advances, but it's also simultaneously devastated our ecosystems. And I, I it's, it's, Remember, you know, it's, it's driven out a lot of holistic thinking from much of business and industry and government. And remember, in economics, the environment that's our life support system is considered an externality. <laughs> so we've learned to value the world quantitatively in terms of numbers and finances and devalue the whole diverse world of emotion and systems and meaning and what we've done is we've learned to look at the world as a set of resources and to forget that it is home and i you know one thing i need to point out is i don't mean to imply that one mode of thinking is superior to the other my point is that neither is my point is that we need to use our whole brains and overvaluing one mode at the expense of the other is thinking with only half a brain. And that's what is dangerous and, and very destructive. I think, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. The, I think the really destructive aspect of ignoring the right brain so much is its ability to see the big picture, 
I think of what we've done uh, here in BC. We have the highest biomass weight of living things in these forests than even the Amazon rainforest. And the reason is we got big trees, but it's a rainforest. It rains a lot. And if you look at the soil, there isn't, it's depleted in nitrogen. So the big dilemma is how can we get such big trees when there's so little nitrogen in the soil? And that's something I'm very proud of what the David Suzuki Foundation did supporting Dr. Tom Reinkin at the University of Victoria to show, to solve this great mystery. Big trees, no fertilizer in the soil. What Reinkin and others have shown is that these big trees get the biggest pulse of nitrogen fertilizer from the ocean through the salmon that return every year. So up and down the coast, billions of salmon are coming back. They're loaded with nitrogen from the ocean. And we can tell the difference between ocean nitrogen and terrestrial or land nitrogen. And what he has shown is if you take a core from a big tree, you get fat rings and narrow rings. So the fat rings have had a big growth in a year. And what he found was that the fat rings have a high amount of nitrogen that has come from the ocean. And when you have a skinny ring, there isn't as much uh, nitrogen. So he had a direct relationship between runs of salmon and how well the tree did. He uh, followed what happens to those salmon. And a bear on average will take about 600 salmon out of the river. They're usually salmon that have already spawned. And they'll fish together around a big pool, but they don't like to eat with other bears around. They run it off into the forest. So they can go up to 150 meters to the side of the river and they eat the brains and the belly and the eggs and they dump the rest on the floor. And then of course, you know, the ravens and the slugs and the beetles and everything is eating what's left there and they're pooping in the forest and they're fertilizing the trees. And the carcass usually after three or four days is covered with maggots. The flies lay eggs and the maggots are eating the, the flesh and then they drop to the floor of the forest and over winter now, they're loaded with nitrogen from the ocean. And the next spring, when trillions of flies emerge out of the ground, it's exactly the time when the birds from South America are coming through oh on their way to the Arctic. God. So this unbelievable system. And the other thing is, <laughs> you know, a lot of the, the salmon die and they sink to the bottom uh, of the river or the, the stream. And within a few days, they're covered with a coat of fungus and the fungus is eaten by bacteria and copepods and, and insects. And when the baby salmon come out of the gravel, you know, four, three or four months later, the river is filled with food for the babies that have come from the carcasses of the dead mothers and fathers. So in dying, they prepare a banquet for their kids to get them off on their uh, route to the ocean. So this is this brilliant, wonderful system that's all a part of, of a single entity. What we do when we come along now, the government's coming, oh, well, the salmon. Well, uh, that, um, you know, the Minister of Commerce, uh, he deals with the uh, uh, 
uh, commercial fishing fleet, but then there are a lot of sport fishers. That's a department of tourism. So you've already divided the salmon up into completely different departments that are often going to be fighting each other. And then we say, oh, well, the trees, that's the minister of, of forests and the river. Uh, well, uh, that's the minister of energy or the minister of agriculture. And of course, you've got the eagles and the, the bears. That's the department of the environment. So what is a single holistic system that the right brain sees instantly the left brain goes oh we're going to manage this through our very you know so this is what really brings us into a lot of our crisis today how do we get to this over dependence on breaking things down and actually a concept of progress really only appeared around the early 1800s and um, we came through into the 20th century and got into the 50s and we saw the glory days of advertising starting to help business to profit by making us want more things. And by that time, Western thinking had pretty well become left brain thinking. And then the 60s hit, which was incredible. I mean, it was an explosion of the right brain against that long left brain creep of the, of the centuries. And um, no wonder they called it the counterculture. It was amazing then to be young and alive and to protest against the hierarchy and against the dominant linear thinking, which appropriately was called straight. It was an age of rebellion, of marches and demonstration. It was an era of rejection of injustice and a boiling up of noble ideals. And it wasn't just against something. It was supremely creative. It gave birth not just to an explosion of music, as you know, but think about it, to the civil rights movement, the feminist movement, the peace movement, and the environmental movement. Mm. But remember, all these movements were in those days thoroughly intertwined and music and art were integral parts. So our field, for example, the environmental movement was born in the time of civil rights and social justice and pacifism and was steeped in it. That's why Greenpeace got its name, right? Green and peace. Environmental work was born out of a deep link between social justice and all progressive movements. And for the first couple of decades, the modern environmental movement was pretty successful. We had a lot of great adventures. <laughs> I mean, that was when we were really following our spirit. We were just, I mean, it might look random historically, but it was so much fun. We also lucked out in part of it was because of our environmentalism, but also the filming. You know, we it lucked was, out yeah, in absolutely. meeting the Haida. But you know what? When I think back, because of the nature of things, because of your television program, that was in the late 70s, yeah. right? And at that point, we weren't environmental. Well, we just like everybody else. Or worried was, about pollution. Yeah, and that kind of thing. Dogging. Yeah. But that show introduced you to the Haida people, which introduced you to indigenous people in general. And that, I think, is what started our conversion to environmentalism because after that show you we got involved with the stein valley and uh, the nakapamaks people in interior of british columbia fighting for their forest and then that gradually spread because the same problems we realized holy smokes are popping up in other parts of the world so we realized the ainu of japan were trying to fight for their salmon and bears because their rivers were being dammed um, just like in British Columbia, and, and then the Panana Sarawak, you know, <laughs> yeah. same thing. And then the Kaipo in Brazil. Oh my gosh, 
there they were trying to stop a huge dam that was going to drown vast territories of not just of the trees but of all the wildlife that lived in those forests and so we just had one adventure after another once we opened that door to see what was really going on in our own province and then recognizing those same patterns. So what have we learned from the COVID-19 lockdown and what kind of a world do we want to head for after? Well, well, that's, I guess, a question everybody's asking. I think for us, we were forced to look back at nature and spend a lot of time in it and we couldn't help but notice how nature was bouncing back even a little bit in our corner of the world we saw that the lack of planes up there made a big difference and that the lack of boats out on the water just roaring up and down and harassing whales and so on wasn't happening and the whales came back and i think it just gave people a moment to take a breather and just ask are our lives proceeding in the ways that we had hoped for and in the ways that are going to bring us fulfillment and a happy, healthy life in the future. I know a lot of people only felt hardship in this time and I don't presume to speak for them. People have lost their jobs, people have lost their lives and loved ones. But I think for me and, and for a number of the people I know, it's brought a, the sense that one can make the right decisions for oneself in the future and determination to try to not let that sense slip away. It's a powerful feeling and it's a good feeling and it gives us hope. We're always looking for sources of hope, but I think this is quite a big one and I'm going to take it. Well, I don't think there's any better way to end this discussion than that. Thank you very much for that. All of our listeners will now know how lucky I am to be married to you. And I think that I'm now going to put every effort I can into getting you elected Prime Minister of Canada. <laughs> you can be my campaign manager. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks to Tara Cullis for that expert interview. I've had so many memorable conversations with her over the years. And that was no exception. And thank you for listening to Season 1 of the David Suzuki Podcast, COVID-19 and the Basic Elements of Life, produced by the David Suzuki Foundation in partnership with Jason Arkley Productions. I recorded these interviews from the traditional unceded territory of the Wiwaikai First Nation. I'm so grateful for how Indigenous peoples have been responsible stewards of these beautiful lands for thousands of years, and how they continue to teach us so much about how to live sustainably on this planet. For more information on how you can help advance a green and just recovery from COVID-19, visit davidsuzuki.org slash greenandjustrecovery. To support our work and help us make more podcasts like this one, visit davidsuzuki.org slash donate. This wouldn't have been possible without our incredible production team, Jason Arkley, David Leibel, and Brendan Glauser, and Katie Jensen, Renita Bangert, and Michal Stein of Vocal Fry Studios. Theme music by Scott Nolan. Artwork generously provided by Roy Henry Vickers. 
Until the next time, take care of yourself, each other, and this beautiful living planet. It is, after all, our only home. To close this episode, perhaps a lesser-known song by the legendary Neil Young. Neil Young has been using his music and voice to bring attention to environmental and social issues for decades. Look at Mother Nature on the run in the 1970s, he wrote 50 years ago. It is my great privilege to wrap the first season of the David Suzuki podcast with a beautiful musical contribution from this iconic musician, devoted activist, and dear friend. Here is Neil Young with Green is Blue. So I